Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. A couple other things, just, um, we have a couple seats right in the front, just right there. No, not, no, not those, not those. Come on. No, not those either. Just right, right here. Oh, yeah, you love me, but not that much. Oh, you love those people too. Okay. Hey, so just a couple of things by way of introduction. Number one, we love baby noises. So if you have a a child who's making noise, hallelujah, let them stay. Do not feel any pressure to leave the room. Secondly, we always do Q&A at the end of these little talks. The reason we do is because in today's world, we think religious authorities should be allowed to be questioned, and we really think doubt and wonder and, um, and question asking is a really important discipline to display together. And so there's an introvert line right there. For those of you who will not in any way, shape, or form ever say something publicly, and then... Um, and then there'll be a couple of microphones roaming around the room. All right, now, if you've been a part of our community uh, this spring, we've been going through one of the four biographies of Jesus called the book of Mark. And coincidentally, we end the book of Mark um, on Easter because that's where the book of Mark ends. It's awesome. So we're going to look at a passage that is, is, is totally interesting. It's Mark chapter 16. On Good Friday, Susie and a whole team of people led us through the crucifixion sequence that Mark uh, outlines in 14 and 15. And then in 16, we read this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early, bless you, on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to roll, or excuse me, on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? Now, despite having been with Jesus the whole time, and being disciples of Jesus, and being servants of Jesus, and hearing Jesus offer three predictions that he's going to rise again, they were going there that morning, assuming he was going to be completely and utterly dead, right? The tombs would help uh, not only preserve the body a little bit, but it more helped with the smell. Uh, Did I say the tombs? I meant the spices. Did I say the spices? Okay, yeah, the tomb, that that helps with the smell for sure. But um, no, I meant the spices. Guys, I want you to know that there are so many great churches here in Tennessee. (laughs) And our regular speaker will be back next week. (laughs) So you're more than welcome. Anyway, so the spices, ladies and gentlemen, the spices, they were bringing the spices, assuming the body was still in there. And the big question they asked, well, who's going to roll away the rock? Assumes, of course, that he is still dead. So there are two notes in this intro section. Number one, where are the male disciples? They're not there. It is the women who have tended to Jesus more dramatically than the men have throughout the whole Gospel of Mark. 
But there's also a note that their imaginations are still confined to this present age. Even though Jesus had predicted his resurrection, they assume he's still dead. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And this word alarmed, uh, the Greek word literally means they were amazed out of their minds. Like, it's not just a minor like, oh, well, that's, hmm, that's interesting. It was they were amazed out of themselves. And what's fascinating is this, this little, like the other gospel accounts talk about angels being there, but Mark talks about a young man sitting there. And the reason is in one of the lead-ups to the crucifixion, we meet a young man earlier in the story, and it's very weird. Go ahead and throw that up if you would, Sarah. In Mark 14, this is when Jesus was arrested. A young man wearing nothing but a linen... <laughs> oh... I just learned English. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. We don't know who this is. When they seized Jesus, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. And that's all that we hear about this person. I have no idea. Some some people think it's Mark, kind of. I, I have no clue. But we meet a young man who flees when Jesus is... Uh, arrested. And then it's interesting in the resurrection story, we come back around and what are the two, or what do the women see at the tomb? A young man. And it just hints, again, these are just such little notes of reversal. There was a young man who had fled, but now there's a young man who is sitting there. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed, amazed out of themselves. Don't be amazed out of yourself, the the young man said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. The original language literally reads, Jesus, the crucified one. It becomes a title. This Jesus, the crucified one, he has risen. He is not here. See the, place, uh, see the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and even Peter. Now, what's interesting is, again, you, if you've been tracking with us in any way, shape, or form, this phrase, his disciples, Jesus, they're only called his disciples twice. The, the disciples have been screw-ups. There, there is a dynamic throughout the book of Mark where the insider characters that we're sure are spiritual insiders turn out to be outsiders. And the outsider characters who would be rendered outsiders because of their uncleanness or the religious authorities or whatever, they turn out to be the insiders. And so the disciples, when Jesus shares his last meal with them, he shares a meal with someone who would betray him, deny him, and they all abandon him. But right before that meal, he calls them, and this is the only time the phrase is used, he calls them his disciples. Interesting that here, after their denial, after their abandonment, um, and after all of the craziness, the young man, the angel, refers to them as his disciples. Go tell his disciples, they're still his disciples. After all of that, they're still his disciples. And then The young man singles out Peter. Why? Because, of course, we know Peter denies Jesus three times. 
So even though the disciples have been characters who've been proven to be unfaithful, there are these notes of incredible grace that even in the midst of their unfaithfulness, they're still his disciples, even Peter. But go, ladies, and it's significant that the ladies are the ones to go. Right? We, we believe that women are central to the gospel story and we're the first proclaimers of the good news that Jesus was risen. Go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, this is the last sentence of Mark, and it's so weird. Trembling and bewildered, and the word means overcome with fear, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And then the book of Mark ends. Now, that's such a weird ending that centuries later, writers tried to clean this up. There are several false endings of Mark. In my, in my Bible, there's actually a little bracket that says, hey, the next part you're about to read isn't in any of the earliest manuscripts or witnesses. And it's about snake handling and all these sorts of very interesting things. But it is universally agreed that that's not the ending of Mark. Someone tried to clean it up because the ending, go ahead and put verse 8 up there, Sarah. That ending's weird, right? Trembling, they fled. Now, what's interesting, trembling and bewildered, the women that went out and fled from the tomb. Now, the word fled, and again, if you're new with us, I know this is the most fascinating part, but let's talk about the word fled. They fled from the tomb. Now, the word fled is Mark's way of telling us that even though the women were the last to abandon Jesus, they ultimately abandoned Jesus in a, in a, in a similar way. Because, go ahead and focus on fled for a second, then everyone, the disciples during Jesus' arrest, deserted him and... And then the young man... He fled, leaving his garment behind. And so now the women, who have been the most faithful embodiment of discipleship, even they can't wrap their heads around what has happened. And so Mark ends with the weirdest ending ever. They fled, and they told no one. Now obviously they ended up telling somebody, because here we are, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, we're grateful for that. Absolutely. Ladies, way to go. But Mark has this ending that invites almost reflection. Like, have you ever seen a movie that ends and you're like, there's no way that's the ending. And then you go online to kind of look it up and see what it means and wrestle with it and see all the fan theories. Like, this is what we're still doing 2,000 years later. Mark ends it, I think this is the original ending, and Mark ends it this way, because this whole, the whole gospel narrative is about confronting the church of Mark's day and age with their complacency as so-called insiders. And so he leaves this ending just hanging there. Now, there, I, I've, um, I've preached Easter Sunday quite a few years. It seems to happen every, every year. And there's always a song that we sing. Go ahead, I, I thought I would sing it for you. Yeah, we want to put our best foot forward today. 
But do you recognize this song? The greatest day in history, death is beaten, you have rescued me, sing it out, Jesus is alive. The empty cross, the empty grave, life eternal, you have won the day, shout it out, Jesus is alive. He's alive and, oh, happy day, happy day, you washed my sin away. Now, that is a totally appropriate song to sing on Easter. But that phrase, oh, happy day, does not describe the original Easter at all. When you look at the gospel accounts of what was happening, they are filled with a community in so many different stages and process and grief. So it's not just Mark that has some weird stuff at the end of it. I want to look at four kind of episodes throughout the other gospels that just talk about how the resurrection didn't solve everything. Even though Jesus predicted it, even though they, the church had the faintest idea of what this might mean, it took them decades to recognize the full implications for what this meant. Because when, when somebody rose from the dead, the idea was the old evil world would be shut down for good. So how can Jesus rise from the dead and Rome still be in charge? And evil and suffering still happen. And 2,000 years later, we're still wrestling with that. So very recently in our own community. So four episodes. Number one. Luke, chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women, here they're not named, took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men. Well, I thought there was just one. Nope, two men here in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? Well, because dead people usually stay that way. He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all of these things to the 11 disciples, the 11 apostles. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. So the apostles had left the women went and were the messengers. But they did not, what? Believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over the strips of linen lying by themselves, he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Jesus told you ahead of time what was going to happen, and he's still wondering. So it's fascinating, on that first Easter Sunday, there were people there who thought it was nonsense. Second episode. This is from John, and this is so funny. I have no idea what this means. It's just funny. Early on the first day of the week, it was still dark. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. So we haven't heard her name. And saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now, there's a lot of debate. Is this John's way of referring to himself? Because it was a convention of the day that you might use, instead of an I statement, you might use a way to talk about yourself in the third person. 
perhaps, not sure, but let's say it is John for a second. This was John ways of referring, John, John's way of referring to himself. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Remember, John's writing this, so if it is John, this is John's way of saying, me too. And the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, which is awesome, and uh, Mary said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if there's some symbolic meaning here. I just love it. Because in John, there's this weird thing between John and Peter where Peter will be like, well, what, what about John? And Jesus is like, ah, he'll take care of him. I mean, it's just this weird thing. So he reached, the, he reached uh, the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. <coughs> Excuse me. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen, which is significant. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. And then either it was John or a later scribe added, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were saying. So instead of, oh, happy day, we have a group of women terrified out of their minds. We have a group of disciples, apostles, men, who thought it was nonsense, the women's testimony. And then we have two guys who are in the midst of something magnificent but are keeping track of who reached the tomb first and missing the point entirely. Third episode. <coughs> Pardon me. I'm trying to stop. Well, forget it. I won't make that joke. Now, Mary, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. So evidently, Mary stays behind, just weeping. And what an image, right, of just hanging around after something is horribly disappointing and painful. You don't even have the energy to leave. You just stay there. You can't move. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. And evidently this happens a whole bunch of times. It's Jesus showing up, but they don't recognize him until he does something. So Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Really, Jesus? Looking for you. And then there's this line. Thinking he was the gardener. Oh, now, there are some ways of interpreting John that see the seven signs that are woven throughout the Gospel of John tied to the seven days of creation, and that this is an instance where Mary is, is this is almost John's way of saying, no, 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 this is the renewal of all creation, and so of course she would suspect he was the gardener, like that's pregnant with meaning. 
from the Garden of Eden. I don't know if that's true. But she saw him and didn't see him all at the same time. Sir, if you, get, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, I think it's Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not, oh, can you imagine this? Everything, the devastation you have just been feeling is wiped away in a second. And then Jesus says this, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Have you ever been wanting to hang on fiercely to the way things used to be and felt like God said, nope, we got to move forward? Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord, and she told them he had said these things to her. So that first Easter, there's a community of people who are terrified out of their minds. There are a community of people who thought it was nonsense. There are a community of people who are missing the point and keeping track of who's the fastest. And then there are people there who are grieving and see momentary hope, and that hope says, wait, it can't go back to the way things were. Lastly, one of the most famous episodes. This is a week later. Jesus appears to the disciples. Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And you can imagine Thomas going, yeah, yeah but I saw him crucified. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks, see the nail marks in my hands and put my finger where their nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I don't care what he showed you. I want him to show me. Have you ever felt that way? A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was among them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas has this incredible confession. My Lord and my God. And then Jesus said, blessed are you, even though you've seen and believed. Even more blessed are those who have not seen and believed. But what's the picture we get of the first Easter? Is it, oh, happy day? And hallelujah, there's a place for oh happy day. But there's also a place for a community who has no stinking clue what this means. Because it's two contradictory pieces of information. Jesus, we think, has risen, and he's eating breakfast with us, and evil is still afoot in the world. That's not how it goes together in the big story. And so 2,000 years later, here we sit, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, and we're in a very similar spot. For some, it's nonsense. For some, who are in the midst of incredible grief today, they can't go back to how things used to be. And there's just a gaping hole when looking forward. For others, there's lo loads of doubts. I'm tired 
of hearing about how Jesus meets with other people, I want him to meet with me like that. And then there's just a whole bunch of people like me who believe this humongous thing has happened and yet I continually miss the point. And so we wanted to hold, because I think the scripture invites us to this posture of grief and hope. Right? We grieve. Absolutely we grieve. We talked about this last week and on Good Friday. Like, the scriptures invite us into a posture of lament, which is ruthless honesty about the fact the world is out of joint, is out of order. And we sit at the tomb weeping at our disappointments, at the way in which we've been abandoned, betrayed, and so on. And yet, as Paul says, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. Because if the resurrection is true, and he is risen is a factual statement, then none of the evil has the last word. It won't always be this way my friends. We won't always be struggling with mental illness. We won't always be wrestling with what it is to be faithful in our marriage or a good parent or to be afraid of being forever single. See, hope in the Bible, go ahead and fire that up, Sarah. It's not shallow optimism. And that's why we have to start with lament. Americans, we don't like lament. We like cliches. Right? God has a plan. God's in control. God must have needed that person in heaven, so he took him home. What a bunch of baloney. The Bible does not do that. As we talked about last week, Jesus sat knowing he was going to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead, and he wept. So we join in the world's weeping, even today. So it's not shallow optimism. It's not naive or cliched that where we pretend that evil isn't really evil. It refuses cynical pessimism that says it will never get better. Biblical hope laments and it tells the truth. It names reality. It sees through the wilderness and not around it. And so we sit, for some of us, it's a happy day. And hallelujah, we love that. And that's true. This hope, Paul tells us, does not disappoint. And it has the last word. But for others of us, just like 2,000 years ago, we're a bit of a mess. And the Bible doesn't ask us to clean it up in order to celebrate some holiday where we honor a Jewish Messiah by eating ham. <laughs> and getting chocolate from plastic eggs. And I'm a fan of all of it. All right, so is there anything you want to ask about or talk about? You got one from the text line. Go, Kev. Let's, let's start from the text line. Let's do it. You ready? Now, hold on. It's a good one. That's what I was just going to say. Okay. The answers are not that great. But we do this to honor the questions. Go ahead. 
Um, why are the gospel accounts so different on this event? You would think it is so important and unbelievable that the disciples would want to have a very clear yes. and factual account of yes. what really happened. But each one seems to have a very different account of who was there. Amazing! What they did, etc., etc. Why? Oh! All right, so we have two options. One is that they all got together and they made sure they used the same account. In which case, we would all accuse them of what? Colluding, right? They just copied each other. Or you get the very messy human experience of people who had no stinking idea of what was happening. And for me, that actually feels truer. One of the reasons why I love the Gospels is because except for that place in Mark, they don't feel the need to clean themselves up. The people who penned these aren't the heroes. History isn't written by the victors in this case. It's written by the screw-ups who Jesus loved into their future and faithfulness. And so I love, I love, and then you don't have to, because these are great questions. Well, was it a young man or two people? How many women were there? What was the order? They, Mark says they said nothing, and then all the other disciples are like, yeah, they said something, because here we are. Imagine, if you will, experiencing that first day. you would have utterly no idea of what's happening. And all the accounts pouring in would be weird. We can't even, if we're four of us are describing a car accident, we can't even get the details right. So you don't have to buy this. But I actually think one of the reasons why I trust the text is because it's so human and doesn't try to clean it up. And there are ways that people have tried to harmonize all of these. Just because it says there was one young man, it doesn't mean there weren't two. Could have been just the one that was speaking. And there are ways to do that. But I love that however it comes out, the Bible reflects a human and divine partnership. That doesn't mean it was dictated verbatim, but rather filtered through the experience of the first eyewitnesses. And those eyewitnesses were a mess which is fantastic because that means I'm welcome in that tribe. What a great question. One Anything more. else you want to talk about? This is a good one off the line. Um, if women were so loyal to Jesus, his life, yeah. all the way to the end, why did he not choose one of the females for a disciple? Oh, what a wonderful question. Thank you for asking that. Okay, first of all, he had women disciples all over the place. In Luke chapter 8, we read about women disciples, some of whom were actually financing the ministry of Jesus. So we love wealthy ladies, okay? They are welcome here, absolutely. But I think, I think the questioner is asking, well, why, why weren't, or why wasn't one of the 12 apostles a woman? Because he does name 12 and they're all men. Now, here's my take on that. There are other Christians who will disagree, but I disagree with those Christians. <laughs> when Jesus, what's the number 12 mean? 
in the Bible. When you hear about 12 anything, who are we talking about? 12 tribes. So the, the, the choosing of 12 men was Jesus' symbolic act of reconstituting the 12 tribes of Israel around himself. Jesus says all over the Gospels, I've come for Israel, I've come for Israel. Not just Israel, but I've come to renew Israel. And so of course he chooses 12 men because those were symbolic of the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. So it was unmistakable. The surprise comes when the prominence given to women all throughout the gospel accounts, whether it's, it's Mary sitting at Jesus's feet and assuming the posture of a disciple in the book of Luke, or the fact that a woman anoints Jesus and shows herself in, uh, earlier in Mark to be the most faithful disciple when the, the men, and again, we're not, I don't want to make this a male-female thing. It's just that Christianity has a bad rap because of the way some of the text has been implemented about oppressing women. And I just don't see that in the text. And so what I see instead is Jesus upsetting all of these social conventions in order to have female disciples. But the apostles, those, the 12 were to be men because they held a symbolic function. And if you're gonna hold, well then only men can be apostles, then you have to reckon with the fact that they were Jewish and none of us are. And you have to reckon with the fact that in Romans, Paul references a female apostle, Junia. So the picture is just more complicated than I think that. But great, great question. Oh my word, Easter, let's go. Anything else? We got a couple minutes if you want. Um, okay, so with these being uh, like, like when we look at the Gospels, being an account, like an eyewitness account, this is their individual stories. How do we know when to take like significance out of something? Like the little statements or the little moments, like, so, you know, them getting to the tomb first. How do we like... It's like, well, that's just their story. Maybe there wasn't significance in that. But yeah. It feels like sometimes we pull out so much meaning totally. out of something. Yeah. And make it like a theology around it, kind of. Oh. Okay, that is an incredible question. My goodness. And requires an answer far larger than I could do in 30 seconds. There are ways that ancient writers would draw attention to things because you didn't have, like, bold typeface or you didn't have, you know... Um, italics. So one of the things that ancient writers would do is they would repeat things. So if you want to know, if you want to say that God is really holy, you don't say holy times three, or you, you know, underline holy. You say he's holy, holy, holy. Other literary conventions that they use, one that we've seen all throughout Mark, is the sandwich or bracket technique, right? So often, but this doesn't always come across in English, Often the ancient writers will be telling you they're doing something that, that has, and, and when we talk about the Gospels, they have a theological point. They're not just written so that you would just sit there and go, oh, that's interesting. Like they, they have a theological point they're making out of them. They have an agenda, absolutely, to get you to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. But there will be these hints that something else is going on, like the word fled. We looked at earlier, you're like, oh yeah, they fled. But if you're paying attention, which it's so hard to do, fled was something 
that other disciples did when they were abandoning. Fleeing isn't a good thing in that instance. Does that make sense? So that's such a big question. And, and one of the reasons why the Bible to me is so compelling is because it has a human element and a divine element, and one doesn't cancel out the other. Just because God wrote very human people to do it doesn't mean that God authored it, and just because God authored it doesn't mean that he used perfect humans to do it. So we're always looking for hints, and sometimes you're absolutely right. In the quest for sermon material, yeah, yeah. Hey, Mike, we've got, we've got one over here. Perfect, we can over take a couple more. Yes, you, these are great, guys. Hello, Brooke. No, he's still not letting me hold the microphone. That's Happy right. Happy Easter, Mike. What? Happy Easter. Well, thank you, Brooke. Happy Easter to you. Um, oh, happy day, Brooke. Happy day. So I have a question about hope, and let me set this up really quick. So totally. the past two weeks have been pretty devastating for a lot of people in Nashville, yes. first with the shooting and then with what's been going on uh, in our state house uh, this week. So I've been spending some time sitting in sort of lament, as we talked about last week, but also this past week really searching for hope. So I came across a Martin Luther King sermon called A Knock at Midnight. Maybe you've heard of it. Mm. And in that sermon, he talks about the parable in the Gospels of the man who goes to a stranger's house and is knocking on the door, and it's midnight, and yeah. he's asking him for bread. And the man comes to the door and says, no, go away. And he persists until this man gives him some bread. And I love how Dr. King says, um, keep the bread fresh. That's a phrase he repeats, and I love, I love that, that phrase. So my question for you is, I'm searching for ways to keep the bread, bread being like spiritual bread. Oh, spiritual I got it. I got fresh. it. I got the metaphor. How can, we, how can we keep the bread fresh? Oh, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Not very many questions get scattered applause. So, well done. How do we keep the bread fresh? Well, first of all, we have to, I'm no expert, um, and I struggle with that myself. One of the things I've tried to do is free myself from always having to feel hopeful. Because in, in the Lament Psalms, there are some Psalms of orientation, which means God is great and awesome. There are Psalms of disorientation, where where is God and why have you abandoned me? And then there are psalms of reorientation where he rescued me from the pit and brought me up. And each of those stages is totally appropriate among the people of faith. C.S. Lewis, I'm going to butcher this because I haven't read it in a while, but Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, Lucy, the youngest, has, and it's a silver chair maybe, I don't know, but Lucy, the youngest of these four children that get transported into the magic land of Narnia, where Aslan is a lion and he's kind of the Christ figure in the story. Lucy has this encounter with Aslan separate from all of the rest of her siblings. And Aslan says, you must follow me. And Susie's like, but what about them? I don't care if they follow, you have to follow. She goes back, wakes up her brothers and sisters. They object, call her names, everything. But she says, I'm going, and there he is. The other siblings, they look, but they don't see. But Lucy is obstinate, and so they have to follow Lucy anyway. But the more they follow loosely, slowly, 
they begin to see the faintest shape of what Lucy herself saw. So when I'm looking for fresh bread, I try to be around people who are full of fresh bread, who can see even when I can't. And so that's the only, that's the only thing I, I know to do in those moments, is to be around people who can see. And that doesn't mean it's cliched or naive, that just means there's some of us today really in touch with the hope of resurrection, and there are others of us who struggle. And I just want to say, it's okay to be one of the strugglers right now and not feel the hope. Let others of us see it for you. So good, Brooke. One more, if you want. This side's been dominant. I just, I... I know we're celebrating the resurrection, but it's a competition. <laughs> who asked the more? Who asked the more questions? We don't have to do any more if you don't want to. Oh, one easy one. Oh, finally, an easy one off the text line. Hallelujah. Okay, we'll wrap with this. This is just to redirect it to Easter. What does the resurrection mean for us today? Oh, boom! My good. Somebody who is a preacher, texted that in. And they're like, you need a close, dude. You need a closer? They didn't text in the time. They didn't say hurry up. They just threw a softball. Thank you, Sam. That was awesome. Okay. So this is the normal Easter sermon. But here's the idea. The picture... And the theme of the whole Bible is the picture of God dwelling with people. Bible opens with God dwelling with people. And those people who have the invitation to full participation, which means the invitation to non-participation, they bear his image and they choose instead autonomy and self-sufficiency. And so... The world is ruptured by the entrance of sin and death into it. And so God, because God is interested in collaborative partners, calls a man Abram. Abram, I'm going to form you into a great nation. I'm going to reinstall you like the image bearers that Adam and Eve were. And how do they do? Not so great. So the descendants of Abraham become this incredible nation. And that nation has periods of fidelity and periods of not so much. But the prophets of Israel rise up doing two things simultaneously, condemning the injustice and the ways in which they are not bearing the image of Yahweh and saying that there will be a new thing that will happen. They have different words for this. They talk about resurrection. They talk about new creation. They talk about new heavens and new earth. Jesus shows up on the scene and says that I'm the embodiment of the full image-bearing humanity that Adam and Eve and Israel were to be. And in his death, he condemns the old world and is, in his resurrection, and it's both at the same time. In his resurrection, he begins the remake project of the whole thing. New creation. And so the way the Bible talks about this is what they settled on after that first crazy day. That Jesus 
launched the new creation that is coming, but he did it in a surprising way because old creation is still here and still tempting us and holding us captive. And so the resurrection is the promise that what God did for Jesus, he will do for the whole universe. And that the invitation for us isn't just to trust him with our sins so that we get to go to heaven someday. It's to partner with him now in picturing the new creation right in the midst of the old one. So the resurrection means that we can live the way Jesus did, loving enemies and not seeking vengeance. We can be generous and not have to hoard. We can be humble and not have to compete. The resurrection was the validation of the new way of life that the church is now invited to assume. Because in old creation, forgiveness doesn't work. It's not effective. It's not efficient. You have to believe something else is at work in the world in order to really forgive somebody who you want to hurt. You have to believe something else is at work in the world to return insults with blessing. And so the resurrection is the launch of the new creation, the picture of what it will look like for us, and the invitation to participate in it ahead of time. We wanted to close this morning. We have, a, we have so many great artists in our community. And I want to introduce you to Liv. Liv um, sums up this whole conversation and something beautiful that she wrote. Then we're going to spend some time singing out of that. Then I'll come up and we'll bless and we'll go. But we want to take a moment just to sort of feel the weight of what it is that we've been talking about. Thank you, Tim. So, Father, we're so very grateful for the ways in which this story has reached us through all its weirdness and the sorrow and the confusion and the questions. Somehow, here we are. 2,000 years later. So to that end, God, we grieve and we celebrate. We hold both intention as a community, much like that first community who is full of all sorts of people. Today is a day of celebration mixed with some confusion. Jesus, fresh from his elevation, returns to us with his resurrection infusion. He was up there on that cross, striped with blood and contusions, and then he was dead behind stone, the most permanent exclusion, and now he's here. He's here, and it's not an illusion, but what does this mean? Is this the ultimate conclusion? Because this changes everything. He's fully God, fully man. He died, was buried, rose again, but he still showed himself having holes in his hands. It's changed everything, but it hasn't fixed everything. Welcome to the in-between, where the more we know, the less we understand. And the more our eyes are opened, we almost wish our heads were still in the sand because this world is what it is where pride and blind aggression are in high demand, where we are screaming at the sky like an animal, trying to withstand the insanity like Nebuchadnezzar. We're trying to keep it together. 
We're holding treasure and the weighty pressure of suffering running over its measures. So what was it all for? If life isn't automatically perfect now, then was this all really called for? Maybe, maybe it gives us something to hold on to. That pile of rocks was never meant to stay a tomb, but where death lay, new hope was birthed, reverse womb. And now this pile of rocks commemorates what God has done and can do. He's the promise keeper. He didn't promise peace or perfection, not in this life. He didn't promise wealth or possessions or all-knowing perception, but he declares that in the midst of this strife, there would be connection. He's the God who stays. And regardless of the world's misdirection or lack of protection, he has overcome it. So now we can work through the hellish spaces in our stories where parts of us has died because he's already done it. The new brain traces led from valley to summit. He is the way. And while big money means unopposed goals, even to the detriment of those deemed low as deception flows, as swift and free as a river, he is truth. His words like honey, his affection made known, and his guidance and direction continually makes us grow like a tree planted by that same river. Now we can thrive even though do we feel like we're drowning? Yeah, he's living water. Are we feeling abandoned? Yeah, he's mother and father. Are we feeling depleted? Yes, he's a generous giver. Are we needing someone to rely on? Yes, God always delivers. Are we feeling invisible or more lost over time? Well, he sees us and leads us back toward our original design. So we praise the one who is trustworthy. We praise the one who is faithful. He is comfort when it's painful, honoring when we're shameful. And when we are battling legalistic mentality, he's there with generosity and hospitality. And we're invited to take heart and take part at that table. He gives us hope and we desperately need it. So we celebrate today this hope we have in Jesus that wherever we are standing, we are never alone. He's here and in our hearts and in our story and on the throne.